today, as Ruth read, you guys have read ahead, today we're going to be studying the feeding of the 5,000, which is a miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I hope as we come to this miracle today, we don't miss the beauty of God's power, his provision, and the peace that comes from being his. So before we jump into John chapter 6, I want to encourage you, it'll be up here, but you can go in your Bibles to John chapter 20. This is a specific verse we've quoted multiple times throughout the John series, because this is where the biographer, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, kind of explains why he wrote this book and why he intended, what he intended for his readers to understand. So in John chapter 20, verse 31, John says this, but these are written This gospel was written, this book of the Bible was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. For some of you, that makes a ton of sense. And for some of you, it hasn't clicked yet. And I want to make sure that you understand and remember that as the biographer, John, writes this, the disciple whom Jesus loved, writes this. He did not write these things just to be a good bedtime story. He did not write these things just so you would have good principles to put into practice. But this story that is included in John's firsthand account of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, this specific story, though, is written so you would understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one of God's, that he is the only son of God, church. And by believing and knowing this, that we could have life. We could have eternal life. And eternal life is not about duration. It's about a quality of life, an abundant life that can be found in the name of Jesus. So I'd much rather offend you than God. And so I feel I need to give you this disclaimer. If you leave this place thinking, hearing us teach on this specific story, expounding on what was said, and you think that this miracle is just so you could live a life a little bit better, you've missed it. Because this story points to who Jesus is. So let's go, John chapter six, verse one. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. Sometime after after this. You guys remember John chapter 5? It was like a long time ago. Yeah, I had less gray hair back then. John chapter 5. Now, the interesting thing is at the beginning of John chapter 5, there was a Jewish festival. So this story that we're reading in John chapter 6 either was six months later because that was uh, specifically, that was the Feast of the Tabernacles that John wrote about in chapter 5, or it was the Passover. But it was probably the the Feast of the Tabernacles. So this is about six months later. So from chapter five to chapter six, we're looking at six months. So we come to this miracle. We come to this miracle that includes faith and what it looks like. We come to this miracle that includes God's provision. We come to this miracle that is an illustration of Jesus's teaching on how he is the bread of life. So get comfortable in your pew. I think it's possible as we tackle one of the most documented miracles in history. Verse two, a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Jesus's reputation was preceding him. He had healed individuals. He had turned water into wine. He spoke with a Samaritan woman. Scandalous, y'all. 
His following was traveling close behind him. They were walking near him because they didn't want to miss the next miracle. They wanted to be entertained. And spiritually dead people appreciate Jesus' showmanship rather than his saving nature. So today we're going to see Jesus' incredibly creative miracle. I use that word on purpose, which is his largest miracle thus far. It's his most documented miracle. And it was the fourth miracle that's recorded by the biographer, John. But I have to ask you this, and I want you to think about this for yourself. Are you more entertained by Jesus and his miracles than you adore the person of Christ? You don't have to answer that to me. I just want you to think about that. Are you more entertained by Jesus and what he can do than adore the person of Christ? In churches today all across the country, We have people that attend church services because they think they have to, or because it's a habit that they don't want to break, or because there is this feeling or this fascination with the experience, or they think that there will be extra biblical miracles that will happen within the church service. But unfortunately, all of those miss the point. Misses the point of exaltation of the King of Kings and the true miracle, the true miracle that still happens today guys, when a sinner goes from death to life to maturity, that is a true miracle, church. And that is what we celebrate because we know that in order for that to happen, God must intervene. And without the Holy Spirit, without the Spirit of God residing in us, we want God's blessing, but we do not want his dominion. You know what I'm saying? We'll say things like, forgive me of my sins, but don't tell me what to do, Jesus. So we have this terrible habit of treating the gospel like it's just about Jesus dying on the cross. Now, big fan of the cross. Hope you are too. We even have a big one, right? Like, big fan of the cross, but the gospel does not end there, church. On the third day, Jesus rose. And we can get excited and we can clap as we're singing songs that talk about that. But here's the thing. After he rose, he showed himself to over 500 people at one time and many others. And then he ascended to heaven. And here's some terrifically good news. One day he's coming back, church. One day he's coming back. So I have this question for you. As the body of Christ, many of you are included in Christ. Have you thought, even for a second this week, that Jesus may come back? Have you thought this week at all about the fact that whatever you were doing might be the moment that Jesus comes back? Now, I did. You know why? Because I wrote this sermon. And that's pretty much the main reason that I was thinking about it. But it's not my go-to, unfortunately. Many of us tell God, well, we got stuff to do. So take your time. Drag your feet, Jesus. Right? Let's just be honest. And it's sad Because part of our hope, the end of our hope, if you will, is when Jesus comes back. And I hope that we don't start now. If you are trying to be the planning committee, you have missed it. We are the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. And so my hope for us as a church, as a congregation, is that we would live understanding that this day was given to us to make much of Jesus. So have you thought about him coming back? What I'm not saying is sell your house, discontinue your life insurance policies, but have you lived expectant at all that the Lord Jesus may return today, this week, tomorrow? Verse three, then Jesus went up to the mountainside 
and he sat with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Jesus sits with his disciples. The term I like for disciple is disciplined pupil. Jesus then sits with his disciples, those who have been following him and learning from him. And this is during the time of Passover. You would see droves of Jews coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival where God spared the Israelite firstborns, those who trusted God and put blood on their doorposts. So there are all these Jews essentially migrating towards Jerusalem, and the city is full of traffic. I just got back from L.A. yesterday. I understand traffic, church. And they're going to Jerusalem, and they're on their way, and Jesus and his disciples go up a mountainside to get away from the traffic, to get away from the noise, to get away from the crowd. But from verse 2, we see that the crowds that were following them, they were following them because of his healing reputation. Here's what I don't want any of us to miss. We today often can come after Jesus for the wrong reasons. Because maybe we're attracted to his miracles. Maybe we like the music that's sang about him. Maybe we think he could bring healing. Maybe we think he could bring comfort. Maybe we think he can bring pleasure. And he could do all of those. But the reason we come after Jesus is because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Because he is Lord and we are not. And we get to follow him. So here's the thing. We, or I, could draw a crowd. I could get a bunch of people here. I could promise a bunch of stuff that I could not deliver on because there is a desperation in people, isn't there? We want to be healed. We want to belong. We want to find purpose bigger than ourselves, don't we? And yet that's what Jesus brought. But yet people wanted the shiny stuff that didn't require any commitment rather than the life-changing stuff that would require submission. Here's the thing about true biblical Christianity. Salvation is a free gift. Free. Free. Free 99. It is free. <laughs> but discipleship will cost you your life. If you truly come to Christ, if you've had your heart transplanted, if you have repented of your sins and God has intervened, your priority list will change. You know that, right? Your agenda will no longer be your own. It will be of the Father's because you're about your daddy's business. And this is what we desperately want for those closest to us. If we're included in Christ, we want those closest to us to know him and to grow to look more like him. So if you were invited today, you got one of those invite cards and you're like, you're invited, you know, and you got one of those. We're really, really glad that you're here. But we'd love for you to not just attend our community. We'd love to see you grow. We'd love to see you grow spiritually. And it's not a natural progression of attendance. You can attend church your whole life and totally miss it. It's happened, I've seen it, I've performed funerals and people have done it but it is a supernatural intervention of God evidenced by growth after you repent of your sin. So some that are here, you're just kicking the tires of this church thing. We are so glad that you're here. Come ask us questions. We like questions. But we don't want to bait and switch you. 
Jesus calls us to believe, repent, and follow him. So we don't want you to think that the whole goal is to just come and hang out in the church service and eat some good cookies and have some great coffee and then go out to lunch. We want you to know that the reason we come here is to celebrate the fact that he's coming back and to equip you to be disciple makers in your own oikos, your extended household. So it'll mean that for some of you, you may need to come to terms. You haven't realized this yet, but you may need to come to terms that without Jesus, you or anyone without Jesus is spiritually dead. You can have crystals, you can sing kumbaya, you can attend church, but you can still be spiritually dead if Jesus Christ is not your hope. And without eternal life, if we haven't trusted Christ, we are spiritually bankrupt. Without trusting and following Jesus, because of our sin, because of our sinful nature, we are excluded from Christ. That's the bad news. Oh, but the bad news makes the good news so good, doesn't it? So good. The good news is that Jesus came, that Jesus conquered, that Jesus ascended, and Jesus is coming back. And when you're excited about this gospel truth, it starts to define who you are. Verse five, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? I love this. I love this exchange. You'll see why in a moment. But Jesus, God, really never asks a question because of ignorance. Every time you see Jesus ask a question, it's to expose something in the hearer. And I think he was trying to show Philip that there was an impossibility of feeding everyone that was there physically. I think that's why I asked him, how, you know, where, where could we get this food? Where shall we buy this bread? Verse six, Jesus says, he asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was gonna do. This seems kind of messed up, doesn't it? It's like a parent who has a kid that's been out doing stuff and you look at your, check your iPhone app and then you know where he was and then they come home and you go, so where were you, Right? It's essentially, Jesus knows the answer to this, and yet he comes and he tests Philip. If anything, I think he was testing Philip to see if Jesus wanted them, he wanted the disciples, all of them, to be thinking about the physical, the fact that there was more physical need than possibly they were paying attention to. So let me do something real fast. I'm gonna walk away from the pulpit. I wanna tell you as well, there's probably more physical need in your oikos than you're probably paying attention to. Okay, back to the sermon. Verse seven, Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. I love Philip. He's the logical one. Does anyone have this friend in their life? Anyone have Shelton in their life? Yeah, okay. He's saying, Jesus, we are not able to afford even a snack for each person, let alone a meal. So here Philip is looking at the physical need and the impossibility of feeding the droves of people. And then here comes Andrew. Oh, Andrew. It says this in verse eight, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? 
I love Andrew's faith right here, but isn't it kind of messed up? Every time Andrew gets talked about, he's called Simon Peter's brother. <laughs> There's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, little bro. So you have this young boy with his Jewish Happy Meal. And you've got Andrew going, "Ah, well, we got something. Let's at least try to share it. Isn't this Andrew's faith? Isn't this Andrew's faith being put on display? Lord, we have a little. And so we can at least try, right? Hasn't Christianity in 2018, hasn't the idea of faith become more about talking about faith or even writing books about faith than actually exercising it? Come on, anybody? So my question for you, church, is do you feel that you've ever been in a circumstance that's insurmountable? It's impossible that you just can't even You ever feel like a situation you're going through is just, there's no hope? And yet, we look at this text and we think, but what if God can? What if God is able? What if your little effort is all that God is expecting of you? What if instead of using a laundry list of excuses as our default, We had enough faith to say, let's try and see what God does. What if we can't, but God can? Church, I want us to be a church that's known for exalting Jesus. But you know what that looks like? It's like living by faith. And a lot of times, we think of faithfulness as we have to do crazy things that require a bunch of faith. Let me quote Tim Keller. It's not a about the amount of faith. It's about the object of your faith. The other day I was meeting with some of the worship leaders and we're having this conversation, we're talking about faithfulness and I wanted to remind them that faithfulness in particular, it means to be rooted. That's what it means, it means to be rooted. So I I made Gabe, where's Gabe? Right there, I made Gabe. I said, I need a volunteer and Gabe's like, me! And, (laughs) And we walked out of my office and there's this big tree with this really solid tree trunk. And I said, Gabe, I want you to try to move that tree. So can you guys picture Gabe? Stand up real fast, just so everyone can see. He's big. You'd think if anyone can move a tree, it's him or Sam. And so, so, he, so he gets, and he goes against the tree, and I didn't put it in the slides, but he goes against the tree and he tries to move it. Did the tree move? Not at all. You know why? Because that tree is faithful. And that's what it looks like to be faithful, church. You're rooted. You're not going anywhere, no matter what happens. So don't just, oh, I need to go do this. I need to go. No, no, no. You need to have a consistency of being rooted consistently throughout your life. It's the theme of your life. That's what faithfulness looks like. Man, that's good. That wasn't even in my notes. Aaron's like, why didn't you say that in first service? All right. (laughs) Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus is such a type A, isn't he? I love that about my God. All right, all right, we're all going to get in order, right? And he puts them in order. And these disciples, they probably were getting a little nervous, don't you think? There are 5,000 men. 
that are there. That's what it says. The text says that there were 5,000 men. Now, where there are men, there are usually women. You guys track in with me? And where there are usually men and there are usually women, there are usually children. You guys know how that works, right? Okay. So there was, I'll let some of you catch up. (laughs) There was far more than 5,000 people. That's my point. So this is a massive crowd. Probably 10,000 individuals. Starving mouths because they've been walking on this great journey to hear from this miracle maker. And here they are. They've been traveling just to get a peek of Jesus who has this reputation of doing marvelous and amazing things. And yet, like Woodstock, resources were few and far between. That was for like four of us. Verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves and he gave thanks. If you have your Bible out, underline gave thanks. And distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Y'all see the miracle? He did the same with the fish. Um, what? If I'm a disciple, I'm probably a little nervous. And first you asked me to put all these people into these rows so we can distribute what? A crumb of a crumb to these people? A fragment of a crumb? And as they do, more and more food starts to be distributed. Lord, have you been holding out on us? Where's the caterer? This is crazy. But Jesus gives thanks. There's a reason I had you underline that. Thanks for what? In a human sense, there was nothing to give thanks for because the odds were against them. There was nothing. There was just this little group of food, very little for these 10,000 people. But in the heavenly sense, church, in a spiritual sense, we give thanks for everything because God is the one who intervenes and provides. So church, you wanna be a church that has faith? Give thanks. Give thanks for the hard. Give thanks for the good. Give thanks for the little. But how often, and I'm mostly talking to me, do we take for granted the things that God has given us? How often do I want to get what I deserve because of how hard I've worked, how much I think I've earned something rather than what God gives us, which is grace? And grace is getting what we don't deserve. I don't care how hard you work. I don't care how holy you think you are. You do not want to get what you deserve. You hear me? Romans 3 verse 23 says it this way. Paul writes to the church in Rome and says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Real quick Greek lesson. You ready? You know what all means? All. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What are you owed because of your sin? Not a parting gift, but death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let me just make it as clear as possible. What you deserve, no matter how good you think you are, 
you deserve death. That's some bad news. But remember how good God is. What do you get if you've repented and trusted Christ? You get Jesus, which is exactly what you don't deserve. So who do you want to pay for your sin? Do you want it to be you and your pride? Or do you want it to be Jesus and his crown of thorns? Our eternal life, our justification, our righteousness, our right standing before God, that we get an eternity with God, all of that is a gift from him. None of us should ever act as if we played any part in this gift. Like a 15-year-old driving a Tesla, they did not earn it. You're like, you can't drive until you're 16. Like I said, they did not earn it. Verse 12, when they had all had enough to eat, (laughs) underline that, this miracle is beautiful. When they all had had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Jesus said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. Okay, I love my God. For all the reasons you'd think, dying for me, rising from the dead, giving me what I don't deserve in Christ, great exchange. Like, I love him for all of those things, but I also love him because of his incomparable riches of grace. Jesus gives us enough to have leftovers. Wow. Let nothing be wasted, he says. Verse 13. So they gathered them, and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 12 baskets. This number is specifically used in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 12 baskets is represented, and I think it points to the significance of the number 12. And I think it represents the 12 tribes of Israel that God would provide for them and would provide for us. But it also is not lost on me that the disciples, who probably almost all, maybe other than Andrew, doubted that anything could be done, are directly seeing Jesus perform this miracle right in front of their eyes. They've seen behind the curtain. They're watching Jesus perform this miracle, and they're seeing that he's created access to show the power of the supernatural intervention. If you've ever taught the Bible, there are times where you read a text and you would really like to take people where you want the text to take it, or I'm sorry, where you want it to go rather than what it actually says. And so I would love to come to this text and get to say what it doesn't say. I'd love to tell you that this text is about giving. And then Jordan will come up with a guitar, we'll pass the offering, it'll be awesome. But that's not what this text is about. We'd love to hear God can take a small tithe or offering and turn it into an abundance in the kingdom of God, which is true, but it's not the point of this passage. This was not a giving campaign, church, no matter how some of my co-laborers want to teach it. This was a sign to point that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he is the great I am that he is the bread of life, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Verse 14, 
After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, I just sang the song in my head, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Surely he is special. But many people still didn't, and even to this day, don't get who he really is. But how could they? I was studying with Kevin and and staff this week, actually. Kevin got it twice. We were talking about the parable of the sower. And many of us are familiar with the parable of the sower, if you have some church background, and it's this idea where this farmer spreads some seed. But the interesting thing is, it's the only time the sower is talked about, and we call it the parable of the sower. So I actually think it's about the soil, the parable of the soils. And so the farmer spreads the seed, and it lands on one where it just gets... It just lands on on hard rock and nothing comes of it and there's no root and it's worthless. Some, it lands on just a little bit of, of space where it can start to grow up, but it gets taken. The seeds get taken. Then it lands in another piece of soil that's just a little bit more, there's a little bit more soil, a little bit more harvest there, and it springs up real fast, but then the worries of this world take it away. And then there's the fourth one, which we always think we are, don't we? Can we just be honest about this? It's the multiplied one. It's the one where a bunch of soil, you know, the soil, it sprang up this crop and it was 60-fold and blah, blah. Are you? Are, are you that soil? I don't say that to be mean. I actually say that to be gracious. Have you grown? Let me, let me back up. Have you repented? Because when you've truly repented and you've changed direction, you've started to follow Jesus, all of a sudden, things start to take root in your life. And you start to grow to look more like Christ. You start to grow in your faithfulness. You start to grow in your love. You start to grow in your peace and your joy. So friends, don't miss who Jesus is. Man, yeah, he was a prophet, but he wasn't just a prophet. He was a good teacher, but he wasn't just a good teacher. He was a great man, but he wasn't just a great man. Because all of those accolades by themselves belittle who my God is, church. Because my God, Christ Jesus, is the Savior and the Lord of this world. And he came into this world to bring the kingdom of God to us because we could not and we would not work our way to him. Verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Oh, people, wanting to make Jesus an earthly political king rather than the king of the kingdom of God. Isn't that what we do? We want to attempt to put someone on a pedestal until he or she disappoints us and doesn't do what we want them to do, and so we can throw rocks at them on that pedestal. People wanted to make Jesus a political figure, but that's not why he came. And as we see in this passage, as we see in the next few weeks, as we study John chapter 6, Jesus came and did what no one else could do to point us to the fact that he is who no one else is. So do you believe that God can? Maybe, just maybe, you don't think he can because your circumstance is too difficult. Maybe you don't think he can because you haven't repented and changed direction. 
the end of the parable of the sower, as he explains that analogy, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Some of you literally cannot fathom what I mean, that if you haven't repented, you're not a Christian. Because you will point to your church attendance. You will point to how godly your parents are. You will point to how much you've given the offering. You will point to the non-rated R movies that you watch. And you will try to find justification in anything but King Jesus King. Why? Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. And a lot of us don't want to give up our lives to the Lord. We want his blessing, but we don't want his dominion. We don't want him to oversee our lives. And so I want to encourage you in this moment. I want to give you an opportunity to repent. Some of you were like, wait, uh, I repented. Good. I'm glad. Did you? Good. Some of you haven't. And here's what I know about me. I sin every single day, and I've always got something to repent of. But ultimately, it is repentance that I think the church of Jesus Christ has forgotten to teach, or it's because we just don't hear it. He who has ears, let him hear. And so I'm trying, I'm like, I made the sermon shorter just so I could really punch this. Repent. Repentance, when the dudes are on the street corners with the signs, um, they're wrong they treat repentance as a threat. Repentance was never a threat. It was always an invitation to be intimate with God. So worship team, why don't you come on up? Please don't try to make me sound more spiritual than I am. I'd been a Christian for, at least in my mind, nine years. I had preached in front of thousands of people I was sharing Christ. I was all excited about him. I was telling people about Jesus. I had baptized some of the people in this room. And then June 1st, 2010 comes, and my dad, I get a phone call from a police officer in Phoenix, and he says, what's your relationship to Mike Riley? And I said, that's my dad. And he said, I'm very sorry to let you know, but we found him dead on his bathroom floor. And he's been here a while. And when that moment happened, let me just be honest, I was really mad at God because I knew my father died without Christ. I had shared with my dad who Jesus was, and my dad put his hand out, and he said, Tim, I want nothing to do with your God. And so I was pretty angry. I was shaking my fist at God, but, you know, there was this moment, and I kind of love how God talks to different people in the Old Testament in particular in different ways. You guys ever notice that? Like when he's talking to Habakkuk, I don't know how you say it, but that's how it's said. Habakkuk, Habakkuk, Habakkuk. That's a good name if you ever get asked, what should, what's your name at a restaurant? Just say Habakkuk. <laughs> Sorry, this is supposed to be spiritual. When he talks to Habakkuk, he's like, aw, you're whining to me and you don't even know what's going on behind you. That's adorable. But then Job comes at him, comes to God. And God's like, hey, put on your big boy pants. Because that's exactly what Job needed in that moment. I feel like God spoke to me that way when my dad had passed. Because in that moment, I wanted nothing to do with God. And yet God just comes to me and he said, hey, Tim, there's no one in heaven. There's no one in eternity. There's no one worshiping me that doesn't want to be there. But you got to think of the line of thinking. 
Based on that, there's no one in hell that doesn't want to be there either. Because hell is the place where God is not. And if you want nothing to do with him in this life, he'll give you what you want. And so in that moment, it was June 1st, 2010, I had believed, I had preached, I had done a bunch of Christian stuff that I could justify myself by, but I think it was in that moment that I repented and went, Lord, not me, but you. I'm gonna change direction, I'm gonna follow you. So I wanna give you that opportunity today. I'm convinced that people in first service had the opportunity to repent. I believe God did a work in their hearts and it's God who does it. Don't just go, "Mm," and expect it to happen, but you have to be willing to say, Lord, not my way, but your way. I changed direction. I'm sorry for sinning against you. You can't, but God can. And my hope for us as a church is that we would understand when life's too hard, things are too difficult, insurmountable situations are happening, that we remember that God can. Amen?